0: everybody has a passing interest in astronomy because everybody's looked up at the night sky at some stage of their life and wondered what it's all about
1: welcome to my way a podcast that shares the stories of people who are doing life their way listen along as we explore what works what doesn't and the experience that happens no matter which path we choose i'm your host sunny collins thanks for listening Sunny here. Welcome to episode 38 of My Way. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade. For the first episode of the New Decade, my guest is one of those fascinating folk who always seem to pass through our tiny little town. His name is Robin Ketchpole, and he is a retired research astronomer from the U.K., Before giving a presentation at the Eco Lodge at the end of 2019, he took the time to sit down with me where we talked about everything under, around, and beyond the sun. Like, for instance, have you ever wondered why the sun shines or what might happen if you enter a black hole? Well, we ponder these things and more, so I suggest you pick a starry night to recline on your picnic blanket and listen in as Robin and I wander through the universe together.
0: Okay. Okay, right. Well, my name's Dr. Robin Catchpole. I'm a research astronomer, and although long retired, I'm still at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. I was born in Scotland during the war in 1943, but I only spent a couple of months in Scotland before I went south. My parents were involved in the navy, and they were up in um, in the Orkneys. My father was a doc- uh, was a dentist actually on an aircraft carrier, and my mother, during the war, just until I was born, was kind of assisting on shore up in Scapa Flow, which was big naval base
1: so then did you move around a lot as a child
0: not really we moved to derbyshire but then i and then down to devon and then i went to boarding school in dorset university in london and by then i was sent out to south africa first vivid memory i sort of sometimes think i have a memory of looking out of a pram but i'm not sure whether that's a true or false memory. I think I have a memory of bombed streets in London, but sometimes I wonder about that. And I suppose my first kind of happy memory uh, is of a bluebells on the edge of the wood in the house we lived in in Derbyshire.
1: Mm. Yeah. Talk to me about how astronomy found you.
0: I went was sent boarding school at the age of seven or so and then I'm not sure whether I was eight or nine but I remember cutting pictures of telescopes out of some pile of old magazines and sticking them on a big piece of cardboard to make a poster and that sort of fired my interest in astronomy. And I also had what I called my science book that had been given to me by my grandfather. And it had everything about nature and so on and technology. And the section on astronomy struck me as the one I was most interested in. And so I would say that's when my interest started. And then when I went to um, public school at the age of 13, there was an astronomical society and a lovely telescope. And I rapidly got involved and I used to draw pictures of the sun, sunspots on the sun using a special telescope with filters. And so by then, you know, it was well established that astronomy was my thing.
1: So do you remember what your thoughts were when you looked into your first telescope
0: i remember the uh, a a moment uh, with my mother and this would have been very early on when we looked through one of these beach telescopes that you have you put a penny in and you can look at the scenery and we did that at night and i looked at the moon and for the first time i saw craters on the moon And that for me was a very exciting moment. I mean, I'd heard that there were craters on the moon and then with this beach telescope, put the penny in the slot and fortunately it turned up in the air high enough to see the moon. And that was an exciting moment for me.
1: So when you look up, what do you think about?
0: Well, I try and, uh, well, I don't try. What I do is to now try and interpret the night sky as a three-dimensional object i mean we we initially see the night sky as a sort of hemisphere painted with stellar constellations and the planets and the moon somewhere or other but now and I, I try and see it and explain it to other people as a three-dimensional object to sort of put ourselves in the milky way and see how that relates to us and how all the stars are rotating around the center of the milky way along with us so i try and see it as a three-dimensional thing but i still get enormous delight from looking at the sky the bits of sky i've studied this towards the center of the galaxy the wonderful thing about astronomy is that you can talk about astronomy to people of all ages and all levels of education. You can talk to a small child and you can distinguish between stars and planets and show them how the planets move around the sky. Mm -hmm. You can talk to a high-powered physicist about um, details of stellar evolution, origin of the universe, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And everybody has a passing interest in astronomy because everybody's looked up at the night sky at some stage of their life and wondered what it's all about Mm. so it's not necessarily a deep interest and they don't know not everybody wants to follow it very deeply but Mm. the wonderful thing about astronomy is it does have a sort of universal appeal but at very different levels for very different people There are a lot of things we don't understand about astronomy. I mean, we do have a very good story of the evolution of the universe from its beginnings to the present day. We have a very good understanding of how stars evolve from their birth to their deaths. Um, But there are, of course, a lot of details that we don't know. We don't know what most of the universe is made of. We don't know about dark energy or vacuum energy, as I call it, and dark matter that make up something like 96% of the mass energy of the universe, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. The myths of astronomy, I suppose, I, it used to bother me that so many people still believe in astrology. Um, ah. and that slightly uh, irritates me I mean what or I that
1: people confuse the two
0: <laughs> oh well they do and but that's excusable because sometimes it can just be um, the misuse of the words right. if I think the motion of the planets are entirely um, can be entirely described by Newton's simple laws of motion I'm not prepared to believe that my life is defined by something as simple as Newton's laws his inverse square law and his force equals mass times acceleration law, that explains planetary motion with an h- incredibly high degree of precision. So mm-hmm. that's enough for me. And I suppose what annoys me about that is the it does reflect what I sometimes see as a dangerous tendency to to, to embrace, to reject science and technology and embrace what I would call a pseudoscience. And given the technological complexity of our world i think it's very important that people understand as much about science and technology as they can because mm-hmm. we've got to live in this world
1: mm. yeah yeah um, i mean it's interesting too just because of our own planet in terms of like what our planet is made of which is ocean for the most part and and we we've only scratched about 10 percent. yes liberal a liberal estimate of what we sort of understand and have explored of our own oceans and so it's almost incomprehensible to me to think about what we as little tiny humans understand about where our planet is and then in the greater galaxy and galaxies and galaxies beyond like yes it makes my brain hurt
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes well i think of course understanding and exploration it's certainly true that we know Uh, what the surface of the moon looks like at much higher resolution and detail than we do the entire surface of the earth Mm -hmm. Um, or that is the 70 percent that's beneath the water Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, of course google earth shows us what the the bit of that isn't water looks like to a pretty high resolution um these days as well right yeah so i think we we sort of have an understanding of what a planet like the Earth is, and that's looking at its whole composition and so on. And we understand how stars work. We are and we're at, still at a very exciting time of finding planets all over the uh, well, the galaxy. Martin Rees always likes to say that a a star, an enormous star like the Sun, is a very much simpler thing from the physics point of view than an ant for instance if you think of all the physics and biochemistry that's going on in a little ant it's far more complex than Mm. you know the equations of hydrostatic equilibrium that describe the structure of a star and the rate of nuclear fusion reactions which can be written out i mean complex interactions but an ant is a much more complex structure let alone a human being the universe we live in appears to be perfectly suited to our existence. So I've kind of learned that, that is a thought that sits in the back of my mind. And as an astronomer who started his astronomy in 1962, I have seen a wonderful, coming together of ideas of of different bits of astronomy have now all fitted into a a a jigsaw puzzle that looks ever more and more complete but i do know as a good scientist that often when we think we have near completion and they're just a few little loose ends that don't really fit um that this can sometimes herald a completely new era of understanding and i and I believe we're certainly ready for for some new eras of understanding. I suppose the other thing the cosmos has taught me, which is a little bit worrying in a way, is, for example, that the Earth will eventually just turn back into gas and become part of the sun's atmosphere as the sun expands and swallows it up. I found that rather unsettling, that there will be absolutely nothing of me or my works or anybody else's works left Mm. in a certain time that the universe is completely indifferent really indifferent to my existence in it can a lot of people have very strong spiritual belief or whatever you like to call it religious belief uh, which would not allow you know um, that we cease to exist yeah. I'm afraid I'm one of the school that believes that when we die we completely cease to exist mm-hmm. I mean I, I, I wish I could be convinced otherwise and if when I die I experienced otherwise I will be delighted.
1: Are there astronomers out there who um, are extremely passionate about their religion and oh yes
0: yes and I mean there there are you have in South Africa George Ellis who is a very I mean he is a very excellent uh, cosmologist and he has a strong uh, religious spiritual belief Mm -hmm. and my experience of astronomers is that when it comes to I don't know whether you call it belief or religious belief um, not necessarily subscribing to a formal religion people seem to either have belief or they don't it mm-hmm. it, it seems to be almost a random thing like some mm-hmm. people have blue eyes and some people have brown eyes and the other lesson I've learned in life is that one can hear what they have to say one can debate but one the essence of belief is that it is belief it's not something you can be intellectually convinced of so that uh how can i say dialogues or disputes between believers and non-believers are always uh they'll never get anywhere right yeah i mean it's good to hear but it uh, nobody's going to convince anybody i i for many years i wanted to be convinced into Mm. belief and i realize it is a state of mind maybe experience will one day lead me there but intellectual discussion is never going to everything you see in this room was made in stars what came out of the start of the universe was the the hydrogen in the h2o in the this glass of water everything else the silica the oxygen everything else in the glass of water the iron and so on were all made in different parts of the galaxy well maybe not different parts but in different sorts of stars and they had to be made in the first two-thirds of the life of the universe before our sun and solar system earth were born so everything here is, was made when the universe had been made when the universe was about nine thousand million years old, and it was incorporated into our solar system. And of course, stars are going on evolving since then and producing more of these elements. My my little favourite line that I turn out in my stellar evolution lecture <laughs> is: If you're a romantic, you can think of yourselves as stardust. If you're less romantic, you're merely the waste product of nuclear. Uh, fusion reactions you know (laughs) because all this stuff was made by nuclear fusion well basically um, that we see around us the iron and everything
1: talk to me about the moon
0: oh talk to you about the moon well the moon is very interesting it's our closest sort of external body from the earth it's about 1.2 light seconds away means light takes one and a quarter seconds to get there the origin of the moon is interesting because we think it was created very early in the history of the solar system when a mars-sized planet collided with the earth possibly at fairly low velocity stripped material from the surface of the earth and this mixed with the impacting body probably formed a ring around us, like the rings of Saturn and the moon sort of coagulated out of this. So the moon is large in mass in relation to the size of the Earth. And the mass of our moon is about equal to the masses of the moons of Jupiter. And Jupiter is 300 times the mass of the Earth. So we have rather a massive moon. And the moon has has a very important effect on the Earth, not only raising tides, but stabilizing the inclination of its um, orbital axis of um, rotation of the Earth, which stabilizes the seasons. And so the moon may well have played an important part in the development of life, or at least of complex life on Earth. When we look at the surface of the moon, we see it's covered with craters. We see a very ancient surface that was created in what's called the late heavy bombardment that took place when the solar system was only a few hundred million years old. It's now it's four and a half thousand million years old. So um, there's, there's lots of history of the solar system written on the surface of the moon.
1: Okay, if if we're if we're talking about planets, yes. our little our tiny yeah. little planetary yeah. system, if we're to talk about each one of the planets, yeah. what do you feel like is one of the most important things to know about that particular planet?
0: Ah, well, um, Mercury is a, a suffers huge ranges of temperature. It rotates now very slowly. So the sun rises every 180 days. The temperature rises to 400 degrees uh, centigrade or so and at night drops to minus 180. But strange thing about mercury is that it still has craters into which the sun never shines in which we believe there is water ice. So even mercury that is so close to the sun has water ice. Venus, we often describe as the planet that is undergoing a very extreme greenhouse. Its surface temperature is about 400 degrees. It's covered in cloud. It rains sulfuric acid. Uh, It it probably had water. It is still showing a very thin plume of gas being blown away by the sun that has hydrogen and oxygen about proportions of water in it it has a young surface no very few impact craters active volcanoes although none are active now so it does have an atmosphere a very dense atmosphere uh, as does the earth so uh, venus earth and mars uh, all have atmospheres uh, venus and mars are dominated by carbon dioxide That carbon dioxide on Earth is all locked up in mostly in minerals, uh, but would have the same proportions. Venus, a very hundred times, 80 times the density of the Earth. Mars, about a hundredth the density of the Earth. So there's big contrasts. But I suppose, and of course, one must look at the Earth as a planet and the Earth has um, is tectonically active the continents move around they are lubricated by the presence of water creating minerals that can act as a kind of lubricant uh, possibly are, we're more tectonically active because we have had our crusts slightly thinned by the formation of the moon so you know it's a wonderful place lots of life on earth mm. stuff happens mars we believe used to have seas and uh, was um, perhaps life uh, was existed on mars that's one of the very interesting challenges so we see much evidence for water erosion on the surface of mars and indeed we see the ice caps and we believe there's quite a bit of water frozen below mars surface but it's not a very nice place to be because it's aged and cooled and so it doesn't have a protective magnetic field once you lose your magnetic field you end up losing your atmosphere it can be stripped off Mm. by the solar wind so those are the rocky planets and they're so they're all you know a little bit like each other in a way and um and mars is certainly the planet that's had the most attention from um astronomers And then we move out to the gas giants, um, Jupiter, which if it was 10 times more massive would in fact turn into a star, almost certainly has a composition very similar to the sun in the terms of proportion of hydrogen and helium and so on. But the interesting thing about Jupiter are its moons and um, certainly two of them we believe have oceans beneath the surface and are potential places for life and are going to be explored further to look for possible what's going on with the water below the surface and so on. And then we get out to Saturn, beautiful Saturn and Saturn has some interesting moons as well. Not uh, Titan, which has a thick, dense atmosphere, uh, probably uh, dominated by nitrogen with a bit of acetylene to make it yellow. But it has flowing rivers on the surface, but rivers of ethane and methane, um, what we would call, uh, you know, gases on Earth. And so in a strange way, it may have rather a familiar landscape to the Earth and uh, but fundamentally different um, and if there are life forms they'll be very different to ours. and so then we go out to Saturn um, and Neptune and Uranus Uranus and Neptune we don't know much about them they also um, have some interesting moons and some interesting things Mm. and then of course the non-planet Pluto right (laughs) which turned out to be such a surprise when we saw it
1: how do you feel about pluto being declassified as a
0: (laughs) as a planet well i frankly i think humans like to attach names to things and um if you want to look at the solar system and the stuff that goes around the sun it starts off with very small particles and it builds up to ever larger things and when they're bigger than 600 kilometers they tend to be round so We have a hierarchy of names, we go from dust, meteorites, asteroids, planets, moons around planets, minor planets, uh, Kuiper belt asteroids. But of course, I took rather a flippant view when the whole debate came up because I met many years ago Clyde Tombow, who discovered Pluto, and I shook his hand. And so I said, I always wanted to be able to say I'd shaken hands with the man who discovered a planet. So if Pluto isn't a planet, well, my little story falls flat. So, <laughs> and that's a pretty flippant thing to say. And I think it's a little bit the way I feel about the whole <laughs> argument, <Yeah. laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But Pluto is still called Pluto, even yeah. if it's a Kuiper Belt asteroid. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, the right. name hasn't gone. <laughs>
1: talk
0: to me about stars talk to you about stars well to set the context i mean our sun is a star and it's eight uh, light minutes away so it takes eight minutes for light to get from the sun to the earth and so it's a very close by star so it appears very bright so if we go to the nearest star in the sky that is four and a half or almost four and a half 4.4 light years away so that the ratio of eight minutes to four and a half years is the ratio of distance so stars the stars we see are all very distant so um, they seem much fainter than our sun. So it's very difficult to make the connection between those little spots, uh, pinpricks of light at night and the blazing orb in the sky during the day. But they're all stars. And stars, as I, Martin Rees would say, very simple. They are spheres of gas. And the gas is drawn together by the force of gravity but what stops the gas just collapsing down and forming a black hole is that gravity squeezes the gas raises the temperature of the interior of the gas to tens of millions of degrees to the point where nuclear fusion reactions hydrogen atoms essentially collide and uh, form helium and release energy and that release of energy maintains a temperature which maintains a pressure that resists gravity. And as long as those nuclear fusion reactions are going, the star will stay the size it is, and the energy slowly leaks to the surface and then gets to the surface and the photons race out into space. So we see the star shines. Mm. And that, of course, is why the sun is shining and it's bright and the stars in the, sun, the sky shine. And one of the things that one does learn very early as, um, as a child is that although when we go out at night Venus is much brighter than any star and it's a planet it is reflecting sunlight but all the other stars are creating their own light
1: Mm. so it it really um it, it gives a lot of weight to the children's song twinkle twinkle little star
0: yes well we have um uh, there, there, there is twinkle twinkle little star how i wonder what you are blah 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 now there's an astronomer's version that says twinkle twinkle little star now i know just what you are hydrogen burning to helium and I, I wish i could remember the rest of it but you I'm can find it up. you can look it up on the web and i we write various versions of it but uh yeah yeah, yeah. it
1: seems like you should have the words nuclear fusion
0: oh yes that. no no you definitely <laughs> do i uh, i used to have it up on my fridge somewhere oh, <laughs> i think my great. wife put it up yes
1: and so on the topic of black holes can you give me like a synopsis of um, sort of black holes
0: for dummies. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, black holes for dummies. What What is a black hole? Well, it is just a region of space, somewhere in space where there is sufficient matter concentrated that the force of gravity at the surface defines something called the escape velocity. That force of gravity is sufficient that even light cannot escape from it so hence black so nothing emerges from a black hole well there's hawking radiation that's a a detail but that is of um we would never well we've never we're unlikely to be able to observe that except in very special situations so that's what a black hole is it's just a region of space um where there is a very high concentration of mass now Let's think about black holes a little bit. If we were to make the earth into a black hole, we would have to squeeze the whole volume of the earth into about the size of a marble, you know, a child's marble that you play with uh, maybe two centimeters or so in diameter. Now it's inconceivable except perhaps it, in the first nanoseconds or less of the universe that we could ever get matter or energy into that density. But just to have this thought experiment. Think of the air in this room. Well, it has a pressure and a density, and you can feel it when you wave your hands around. Now, if we were to fill the volume of our solar system with air at the density of this room, it would spontaneously, because there's so much, there'd be so much mass that even at that low density that it would spontaneously form of a, a a black hole with a mass of thousands of millions of solar masses so in other words we find black holes at the centers of galaxies that have three four five thousand million solar masses of mass in them so they have what we call an event horizon. That the event horizon is, if you like, the diameter of the black hole. Though it, 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 the, the mass of the black holes disappeared into a singularity, we don't know, understand inside that event horizon. But the event horizon is—it's not a physical thing. It's a point of no return. Now you could imagine, if you came to a three thousand million solar mass black hole in your spaceship you would be able to sail into that black hole without being torn apart. If you go to a stellar mass black hole, of which there are plenty, the, the force of gravity between the front of your spaceship and the tail, as you approached it, the difference, the tidal force, would rip it apart, tear it to smithereens. But if it's a huge black hole with event horizon the size of the solar system, you'd be able to sail into it. Uh, without being ripped apart and as you did as you looked back at your friends in the distance you would see that their wristwatches were running ever faster and faster you'd see them growing old you'd see their grandchildren growing old and dying in fact in theory you'd see the future history of the universe it would all be more and more blue shifted it might be difficult to see And that's what you would perceive as you crossed the black hole. They would look at you and they'd see your image getting redder and redder. They'd see your watch running more and more slowly and you would just fade into long wavelength radiation. And they would never actually see you cross the black hole horizon, you would disappear. Now that is what Einstein and general relativity tell us. The reality, uh, we know that general relativity which tells us mass and space-time and all these things tells us about that does not has not yet been successfully joined up with quantum physics and quantum physics will apply near the surface of a black hole it won't be a pure surface it'll have quantum irregularities so the reality of what happens when you get to the surface is something that we haven't yet fully understood so uh, and, and one misconception about black holes i would just like to put about because this is a very popular misconception people um worry about a black hole coming into the solar system would create havoc well any massive object coming into the solar system would create havoc but if you perform the following thought experiment imagine that instantly i replaced the sun with a black hole of the same mass of the sun it would be only about 20 kilometers in diameter okay it would go dark which would be bad for us but it would make no difference whatever to the orbit of the earth around the sun because the mass has just gone from being a thing that's in half a degree diameter to um, a tiny little object that's only micro arc seconds across or something but that doesn't matter because it's the mass that controls our orbital speed, okay. nothing to do with whether it's a, a low density mass or a high density mass. It's the total mass that okay. counts. So
1: it's then it would be more just an issue of like a, a vitamin D deficiency. with
0: it, Yeah, so. no, it would be a serious <laughs> vitamin D. So black holes do not swallow things up. And in fact, say I had a, a very high powered gun and I wanted to shoot at the sun it's, it's quite a big target there. And so I could get my gun, line it up and shoot a bullet into the sun. So I could throw mass into the sun. But if the sun became a black hole, it would be such a tiny, tiny target. I would find it extremely difficult to aim at it. And if I didn't go straight into the black hole, my bullet would whiz round the black hole in orbit and probably come back and kill me. Oh, no. So one of the problems in astronomy is getting to feed black holes because we see galaxies where the black holes are being fed and a huge amount of radiation comes out not from the black hole but from the material that's spinning around and around the black hole before it manages to fall in.
1: What brought
0: you to Grayton? Oh, what brought initially. me Initially? Ah, well, what brought me to Grayton initially? Now this has to be a very long story. Well, coming out to South Africa in 66, working in Pretoria, then the closure of the Radcliffe Observatory, moving the telescopes to Sutherland, the headquarters to Cape Town. In Cape Town I became interested in well, I'd always been interested in archaeology, joined the Archaeological Society met uh, a certain woman called Rene Rust who was interested in archaeology and became a professional archaeologist then meeting her family which included Marina Rust Evans and as they say all the rest is history because uh, that's what brought me to Grayton <laughs> but there is another quite strong astronomical connection with Grayton one of my colleagues at the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge, a certain Professor Douglas Goff, has a house in Grayton, and um, he comes out here for so many months a year. So there are okay. previous or concurrent astronomical connections with yeah. Grayton.
1: Okay, so if you had the power to solve one problem in the world,
0: oh, what would it be? Frankie. Um, this sounds like i'm not going to answer this quite directly yet but we once we had a a, uh any astronomical questions and the question that was posed to martin Rees was if you could ask god one question what would it be and everybody thought oh well it would be what is dark matter what is vacuum energy what is the value of the hubble constant and he said he gave what i thought was the best reply he said i would ask god what is the question that i should ask and i thought that is brilliant because we usually get the question wrong um and or the question turns out to be irrelevant when we get its answer and you think oh well that wasn't very important i wish i'd saved it for something else so what would be the one thing i could do i suppose if I could guarantee that the earth could navigate through the next hundred years with its problems of population growth, climate change, population movement. I think I, I I worry that our whole concept of civilization, which underpins living in, even in a little place like Grayton is very fragile and could collapse quite easily. Um, I think that's what I worry about. There are moments, I mean, I'm uh, comfortably, I'm sure, more than three quarters of the way through my life that I almost don't envy young people. Um, Although, of course, I have the curiosity that I think, gosh, they will know what's going to happen in um, 2090 or something or 2100. But then on the other hand, I do think back to my, I was born during the Second World War. So my mother gave birth to me when uh, London was being bombed to hell and gone, where the most awful atrocities were happening all across Europe, where millions of people were dying. And I don't think it's anything like as bad as that right now. So I, I sort of think, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were a lot of people then who were, aged or adult who are very very apprehensive and maybe it is just what happens when you grow older and somehow the world does muddle through in a way.
1: (laughs) I hope you enjoyed poking around the mysteries of the night sky and life with me and Robin Ketchpole and one thing I've learned I owe a lot to the process of nuclear fusion Also, remember when he mentioned the scientifically accurate version of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star? Well, may I present my singing debut? Here it goes. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, I know exactly what you are. Opaque ball of hot, dense gas, million times our planet's mass. Looking small because you're far, I know exactly what you are. We see you as if in the past, light's not infinitely fast. Look back, time delays our view, I know exactly what you do. Fusing atoms in your core, hydrogen, helium, carbon, and more. With such power you shine far, twinkle, twinkle, little star smallest ones burn cool and slow still too hot to visit though red stars dominate by far twinkle twinkle little star largest ones are hot and blue supernova when they're through then black hole or neutron star i know exactly what you are our sun's average as stars go Formed five billion years ago Halfway through its life so far Twinkle midsize yellow star Sunspots look dark but they're bright Slightly cooler so less light Swelling up before it's dead Cooling off and growing red Then its end is not so far Twinkling big red giant star earth's unique with life so far twinkle twinkle little star whoa okay I just did that uh you're welcome or I'm sorry (laughs) so please take a moment to rate the podcast on iTunes this is a huge help for the podcast and it only takes a moment to scroll down and click the number of stars you think it deserves please help a sister out Don't forget to subscribe, share, and follow at Podcast Cowgirl on Facebook and Instagram for photos and updates. See you next time. (laughs) I can't believe I just did that.